hppodcraft.com. I was sick, sick unto death with that long agony. And when they at length unbound me and I was permitted to sit, I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sentence, the dread sentence of death, was the last of distinct accentuation which reached my ears. After that, the sound of the inquisitorial voices seemed merged in one dreamy, indeterminate hum. It conveyed to my soul the idea of revolution, perhaps from its association in fancy with the burr of a mill wheel. This only for a brief period, for presently I heard no more. Yet, for a while I saw, but with how terrible an exaggeration, I saw the lips of the black-robed judges. They appeared to me white, whiter than the sheet upon which I traced these words, and thin, even to grotesqueness, thin with the intensity of their expression of firmness, of immovable resolution, of stern contempt of human torture. I saw that the decrees of what to me was fate were still issuing from those lips. I saw them writhe with a deadly locution. I saw them fashion the syllables of my name, and I shuddered because no sound succeeded. I saw too, for a few moments of delirious horror, the soft and nearly imperceptible waving of the sable draperies which enwrapped the walls of the apartment. Enjoy those sable draperies while you can, friend. You're about to trade that apartment up for some much less glamorous living. Because mm. nothing lasts forever in the cold November rain. <laughs> and it is Povember. Yes. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. We are jumping right into it with the pit and the pendulum. This is a classic Edgar Allan Poe story that we've yet to cover on the show. And when I say the show, I mean the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Hello, I am Chad Fife. And I am Chris Lackey. We are on your internet dial at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. This is our free show for the month of November. You can listen to it on Patreon, even if you aren't a patron. But I would encourage you to think about becoming a patron because you'll get easy access to over 470 episodes from our back catalog, <sighs> covering all the best in weird fiction, horror, and sci-fi. Actually, sometimes the worst as well, but that's just what makes it more fun. Of course, you also get our monthly comments episodes as well as bonus content in which we talk about movies, comic books, holiday customs, how to mm. deal with soiling yourself at a Jackie Chan book signing, <laughs> all sorts of very sophisticated <laughs> stuff. So please consider patronizing us. And you might be aware that we are not the only podcast out there. We almost are. I think there are like three or four other podcasts yeah. from what I can tell. But among this very small number of shows, there is one we like the best. It's this week's sponsor, How to Make a Video Game with Arc Digital. We've talked about Arc Digital before. They are the creators of Octoon Cthulhu Tactics, among other fantastic games, a world-leading independent development studio. If you're into creating or just playing games, you're going to want to listen to How to Make a Game, especially their recent episode, A Potted History of Cthulhu Games. Mm -hmm. Hosts Matt Davies, marketing and community manager, and Matthew Walker, the sound designer, talk with Auric Digital's design director, Thomas Rawlings, on the brief history of Cthulhu Games, where they came from, how they developed over the years. So please, once you're done listening here, flip over, listen to that episode. We will link out in the show notes. And if you enjoy it, subscribe to the show, listen to other episodes. They got a lot of great stuff on offer there. And uh, we'll also link out to a survey by Auric Digital. They're trying to get opinions on what direction the show should take, etc. Mm. Let me tell you something. You are all very special. 
and should get everything you want. So take that survey and let your voice be heard. It's called How to Make a Video Game, A Potted History of Cthulhu Games. Check it out. Hey, who was that reader we heard at the top? Why, that was Eric Curtis Johnson, fantastic actor and even cooler person making his debut on the show. You may know him from the Amazon television series Borderline, which is a a spoof documentary show that's very funny. Uh, I know him because he played Dr. Frankenstein in a play I directed called Grave Expectations, which he's great (laughs) at. And, you know, Poe's language is very dense. It takes a very talented reader to really nail it. And I knew firsthand that this was the guy for the job. So thank you very much, Eric. Glad to have you, Eric. This story, The Pit and the Pendulum, was first published in 1842 in the literary annual The Gift, a Christmas and New Year's present for 1843. Ah, yes. Who can forget gathering around the tree on Christmas morning with the family to read The Pit and the Pendulum? (laughs) One of those traditions. The famous Irish poet William Butler Yeats, who thought Poe was vulgar, Uh said of The Pit and the Pendulum, It does not seem to me to have permanent literary value of any kind. Analyze The Pit and the Pendulum and you will find an appeal to the nerves by tawdry physical affrightments. Mm. Which sounds great to me. I mean, I can't think of a better endorsement for this story. So, you know, all it does is make me want to read it. Let's get into it. The story is set during the Spanish Inquisition and our narrator has been arrested. But we never learn what he's been accused of. And I guess it doesn't really matter because it seems like everyone in the Spanish Inquisition who was a victim probably didn't really deserve it. Mm. The Inquisition was primarily intended to go after heretics. Just a little Wikipedia here. The Inquisition was originally intended primarily to identify heretics among those who converted from Judaism and Islam to Catholicism. The regulation of the faith of newly converted Catholics was intensified after the royal decree issued in 1492 and in 1502, ordering Jews and Muslims to convert to Catholicism or leave Castile. The Inquisition was not definitively abolished until 1834 during the reign of Isabella II, after a period of declining influence in the preceding century. Hmm. The Spanish Inquisition is often cited in popular literature, and history is an example of religious intolerance and repression. Some historians have come to conclude that many of the charges levied against the Inquisition are exaggerated and are a result of the black legend produced by political and religious enemies of Spain, especially England. Hmm. That's Protestant England. Be it as it may, in this particular story, they are the baddies. They are the baddies. It seems like the Inquisition waxed and waned over the centuries, which is probably why nobody expects it. Yes. A theory made popular by the historian Monty Python. Yes. There is a name check in here on Napoleon's general LaSalle, which means uh, this takes place during the Peninsular War of the early 1800s. So centuries after the Inquisition was really monstrous and Mm -hmm. right before it was officially abolished. I don't believe the Inquisition was torturing masses of people or even all that powerful in this period. And historians think that, as you say, even at its most vicious, it was never up to tortures as intricate as what this story describes. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of effort just to mess up one guy. A lot of effort, yeah. (laughs) But Poe doesn't care about the historicity of it at all. This is all about creating a horrific situation for the reader and making them linger in it. And I, I guess the Inquisition is just a great group of baddies to set up as people that would uh, implement a torture like this. So that's the setting. Uh, This guy has been grabbed up by the Inquisition and is on trial by thin-lipped, black-robed judges. Their lips are so thin. (laughs) Our narrator waits to find his fate, and he sees seven candles on the table. They seem like little white, slender angels, and they give him hope. But when the judges leave, the lights go out, and it just leaves him in darkness. Yeah, and throughout this story, there's a lot of, oh, I have hope. Now I'm in the depths of despair. No, I have hope for life again. I'm in the depths of despair. The emotions mm-hmm. of the protagonist swing back and forth a little bit like, uh, 
I don't know, something that would swing back and forth. Something that would swing back and forth. Yeah. yeah, I can't come up with anything off the top of my head. But the judges have sentenced him to death. Yeah. So this is a first-person narrative, though. It's in the past tense as he's recounting it. So unless he's literally a ghostwriter, we can surmise that he somehow survived this death sentence. That's correct. I wasn't really thinking about that when I read it. I was just kind of feeling bad for this fella and his predicament. It says, I had swooned, but still will not say that all of consciousness was lost. Swooning! It's not just for Victorian ladies. Oh, no. <laughs> it comes with uh, your Inquisition victims as well. That's right. First, his mental and spiritual self come back from his swoon and then his physical sense. He says that those who swoon are more sensitive types or, or perhaps have greater understanding of the nature of the universe. This is one of Poe's stories that really has no element of the supernatural in it at all. No. A lot of times in these stories, we have folks swoon because they witness something outside of human experience. But here it's because he's been sentenced to death. And as an imaginative fella, he knows the punishment is really going to suck, mm. which is a good reason to swoon. Yeah, That would swoon me up pretty good, I think. He's lying down when he comes to and he can feel that he's lying on something hard and damp. He doesn't dare open his eyes again because he's afraid. Oh, my God, I'm going to see something really terrible. That's going to freak me out because maybe I'm in like a tomb or I'm buried alive. Who knows? But he opens his eyes, complete darkness. So he deduces that he's in a dungeon in Toledo. In Spain, not Ohio. Toledo, Ohio didn't even exist at this point. Oh, it so didn't. Was, it was ridiculous for you to assume that. I always think of Klinger uh, <laughs> from MASH every time I think of Toledo, Ohio. Who doesn't? Everybody born after 1980, that's who doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Our narrator freaks out a bit and he begins to shake and sweat. He gets up and he feels around hoping to see some sliver of light somewhere, but nothing. He remembers that he was sentenced to death, and he kind of goes back through the trial in his head. I'm clearly not dead yet, though. It says, the condemned to death I knew perished usually at the auto de fe, and one of these had been held on the very night of the day of my trial. An auto de fe was a public execution, one of those things people did for fun before MASH or movies or you know TV, yeah. I guess. This involves multiple heretics being burned at the stake. Uh, auto de fe means act of faith, and that's alluding to the heretic begging for mercy, admitting their sins, repenting. All that stuff they're supposed to do right before they kill them anyway, just for the fun of it, for the pleasure of the crowd. So he knows that they needed more heretics for the auto de fe that night. They, they didn't have enough. So he should have been up there. And also he knows the next one isn't for a few months. So if he's in a dungeon, they probably got something longer and much nastier planned for him. He's heard some very scary stories about this place, and he knows that they're going to kill him. But when and how? It could be that they're just leaving him there to starve. But those scary stories lead him to believe the judges have something much worse in store for him. He walks on slowly and he finds a slimy cold stone wall and he rips off cloth from his robe and he uses it to mark the location. His plan is to feel around the walls and then come back to where the fabric is to get an idea of how big this place is. As he feels around the wall, the place is bigger than he thought it was and it's slippy and he's weak. So weak that he stumbles and falls onto the floor and he's just so downtrodden that he just lies there on the floor and then he falls asleep. <laughs> Not enough swoon time, I guess, because he just woke up from a swoon. Sometimes you got to hit the swoon button on the alarm, you know, get a few more <laughs> minutes of swooning in there. Everybody can relate to that. This story is not so much about plot or character arcs or big concepts or anything like that. It's an internal examination of a horrific, almost action set piece. Yeah. You know, I think we would call this an episode rather than a story, maybe. And it moves at the pace of thought, slowly. You know, especially covering Bradbury last month, I've been more used to modern writing. Uh, and it took me a minute to settle back into Poe's language. Yeah. You can't skim this stuff. Um, you have to concentrate on each sentence to understand what he's saying and to get the meaning. 
But what this does, I think, especially for modern readers, it slows you down to the correct pace of the story. This is really about experiencing each moment of the dread. That's the Mm -hmm. effect that Poe's trying to create, I believe. And because you really just have to focus for comprehension, the side effect is that you really share that internal experience of the narrator moment by moment. And I've read this before, uh, but once again, when I read it, I felt the, the terror, you know? A little mm. bit. I felt the horror in my heart of what if somebody did something this awful to you. I don't like thinking about terrible things happening to me. I don't, I don't think that's a unique <laughs> quality. Uh, and this made me think, man, what if somebody overpowered me and had me at their mercy? And, and what are all the horrible things they could do? And oh, I have to say, it didn't connect with me on an emotional level like that. Like I, I didn't transpose myself into this man's no. circumstance. I didn't connect with it as you did. So when he awakens, he finds a jug of water and some bread. He eats and drinks very quickly, and then he continues his exploration, finding the room is about 100 paces around, which is like maybe a 50-yard circuit. He says there were many angles, so he's not sure of the actual shape. And he decides to walk across the room, but he trips on his ripped robe and falls. As his body hits the floor, his face doesn't. It falls into some kind of hole, and it's a big circular hole, which one might call a pit. Yes. We're halfway there. We got a pit. I bet you there's going to be a pendulum. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) He throws a stone into this pit to see how deep it is, and it's deep, and you can hear the water splash. So there's water at the bottom of this thing. And he thinks, oh my God, thank God I tripped. And he says that this is a crappy way that they execute people by letting them stumble into a pit on their own. (laughs) Anyway, the narrator begins thinking about the fact that he hasn't died yet, that they're going to torture him. He again contemplates what kind of torture he's going to have to endure over the next few days. And chance plays a big part in the story. I mean, he's so lucky he tripped right at that moment over his Mm -hmm. robe. It's almost comical. His chin hit the floor and just the top half of his face is over the pit. So mm. close to going on, going down there, but it's it's very cinematic. It's almost like an Indiana Jones moment. Obviously, movies came much later and did learn these kind of cliffhanger techniques from fiction. But mm. it's that idea, you know, don't just have him feel a draft and go, oh, I think there's a pit over there. Have him almost fall in. It's much more visceral for the, yeah. the reader. And given all the stuff the judges have rigged up in this room, I wonder if they would have been cool if you just walked into the pit in the dark, which makes me think there's some kind of game aspect to it. They're just throwing oh, heretics right, yeah. in there and seeing how far each one gets. So a few will fall into the pit, but some of them don't. And so they go, okay, now on to the next level. So he lies there thinking about these horrors and falls asleep again. When he awakens, he finds more bread and water. And the water, he thinks, must have been drugged because he immediately felt sleepy again. At this point, I was going, this is so crazy and ridiculous that he just keeps sleeping. But then the more I thought about it, the more I got into this idea that when you're just in complete darkness and by yourself, that you probably lose your sense of time. Oh, yeah. And that you must go into your mind a lot. Like, And if you go into your mind and you start to imagine and think and have fantasies and, and you have no real external stimulation besides touching a hard surface, that sleep and awake must have a very blurry line. And it also creates that sense of helplessness at the hands of his torturers. He never really gets to see them. Mm. They're feeding him just to keep him going and obviously coming in and out while he's sleeping, which is super creepy. Yeah. And every time they come in, they change a little something more. Obviously, he knows this is not good news for him. He thinks about throwing himself into the pit. But again, it's that thing where we swing back towards hope. He can't bring himself to do it. Maybe there's a chance. When he wakes, he finds his prison dimly lit and it's much smaller than he surmised. Yeah, he screwed up when he paced the chamber before. He went around twice without realizing it. So it's a square prison. It's actually about 25 yards around with a pit in the middle. And the walls aren't simple stone as he thought. They seem now to be iron or some other metal in huge plates. 
The entire surface of this metallic enclosure was rudely daubed in all the hideous and repulsive devices to which the charnel superstition of the monks had given rise. The figures of fiends and aspects of menace, with skeleton forms and other more really fearful images, overspread and disfigured the walls. There's some nasty-looking images up there on those metal walls. Kind of like a, a horror show, like a, kind of a yeah, like a spook house kind of thing. Totally. So he is also bound to a wooden board by a large strap. It holds him down, and he can move his left arm to grab some food, which is near him. But there is no water, and he just thinks, oh, I'm so thirsty right now. I really want water. I don't want to eat this food. Looking upward, I surveyed the ceiling of my prison. It was some 30 or 40 feet overhead and constructed much as the side walls. In one of its panels, a very singular figure riveted my whole attention. It was the painted figure of time, as he is commonly represented, save that in lieu of a scythe, he held what, at a casual glance, I supposed to be the pictured image of a huge pendulum such as we see on antique clocks. There was something, however, in the appearance of this machine which caused me to regard it more attentively. While I gazed directly upward at it, for its position was immediately over my own, I fancied that I saw it in motion. In an instant afterward, the fancy was confirmed. Its sweep was brief and, of course, slow. I watched it for some minutes, somewhat in fear, but more in wonder. Wearied at length with observing its dull movement, I turned my eyes upon the other objects in the cell. The pendulum! It's all happening! It's on. So he looks around the room and he sees a bunch of big rats. And I got a little scared we were going to have some 1984 action here, but no. What's 1984 action? The, the, remember they have the 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 rats the not the, the the book the Orwell book. Oh, I've never read it or seen that movie. Oh, you never read it? Uh, uh-uh, no, I never had to. Isn't that we crazy? School. We read it in school. No, I didn't read it in school. I did not. Oh, nope, yeah. Nope. There's a part where they um, they have some starving rats. They're going to put on a guy's face. Oh, I listened yeah, to pretty. the uh, Eurythmics album. They did the soundtrack for the movie. That's as close to it as I've gotten. Oh, well, that's basically the same I don't same think they thing. mentioned rats in that one. Maybe I'm wrong about that, too, though. <laughs> oh, no. My 1984 knowledge is terrible. <laughs> wow. Well, it was also uh, the year Ghostbusters came out. Yeah, that's what I thought you were talking about when you said yeah. 1984 action. So <laughs> these rats don't want to eat him, but they want his food. It's some of this seasoned meat, so he has to kind of swat them away from, so, from his food. It's so extra mean that they seasoned up the meat because that makes him even more thirsty. Mm. Which are those torture techniques that eventually led to happy hour at bars, right? <laughs> when happy hour is first introduced, the whole point was you give away free food, but it's all very salty and seasony so that people buy more drinks. That was, that's uh-huh. the whole idea. But this meat he's got, he's got to protect it from the rats. So he's swinging his hand back and forth over it to keep them away, which I thought was interesting because as soon as he sees the pendulum, he's also got to create his own pendulum with his arm to protect the food. It's very mm. Poe-like touch that there's yeah. multiple pendulums going on in the story. After some time passes, half an hour maybe or an hour, he doesn't know. Again, it's all confusing being in the cell. He looks up and he can see the pendulum is lower and it's swinging faster. It has a huge blade as keen as that of any razor. Yeah, he realizes this thing is going to cut right across his heart when it gets down to him. First through his robe, then into his flesh. And finally, after a couple of strokes, it'll kill him. It'll be extremely painful before that happens. He momentarily wonders, wait, maybe 
Maybe I'll get lucky. It'll slice through the strap that's got me fastened down first, and then I can kind of mm-hmm. roll away last minute. But on examining that strap, nope. The way it's wound around him, there's a break right where the pendulum will hit. So that's a no-go. But in this examination, he also notices, hmm, I'm not bound up by a bunch of small ropes. This is one big wrapping that's got me. It's all connected. So if mm-hmm. it were to be severed somehow, I could probably get out of this. Now, he freaks out a little bit, but hunger gets the best of him. So he takes the meat and he's about to bite into it. But then he gets an idea. Takes that meat and he rubs it. And he rubs it on that strap. Mm-hmm. The rats crawl on him and they begin eating through. This plan is that the rats are going to be able to chew through this thing before the pendulum hits. Mm-hmm. Is it going to work? It's not just a couple cute little guys. This isn't Ratatouille climbing up there and shuffing up <laughs> these, this strap. <laughs> Forth from the well, they hurried in fresh troops. They clung to the wood. They overran it and leaped in hundreds upon my person. The measured movement of the pendulum disturbed them not at all. Avoiding its strokes, they busied themselves with the anointed bandage. They pressed. They swarmed upon me in ever-accumulating heaps. They writhed upon my throat. Their cold lips sought my own. I was half-stifled by their thronging pressure, disgust for which the world has no name, swelled my bosom and chilled with a heavy clamminess my heart. Cold lips on my cold lips. We've done a lot of rat stories, but this one paragraph wins for giving me the rat freak out. (laughs) Didn't like it. (laughs) But it works. It does work. Free! And in the grasp of the Inquisition. (laughs) It's like, ah, yeah. Out of the frying pan, into the fire right that's the the yeah basically the rats get through the ropes and he's able to free himself as soon as he's free the pendulum retracts up into the ceiling so his escape was observed he got out but he's still their captive and they are going to do something horrible to him yes he's avoided the pit he's avoided the pendulum what else could they possibly do well a sort of light comes into the cell and he realizes there's a teeny gap around the bottom of the walls that it's breaking through those metal walls and then all those nasty figures on the walls start to glow Demon eyes of a wild and ghastly vivacity glared upon me in a thousand directions, where none had been visible before, and gleamed with the lurid luster of a fire that I could not force my imagination to regard as unreal. Mm. So his captors heat up the walls, and the walls begin to close in on him, pushing him closer and closer to the pit. It seems like a lot of work to heat them up as well, because they could just push the walls in. The force of it's going to force him into the pit but they heat him up as well to make sure he doesn't touch them or try to push them back or anything like that. Yeah, there is a lot of intense mechanical engineering going on in this place. Yeah, they really hate this narrator. Uh, (laughs) The whole scene becomes very unreal with the shape of the square cell becoming more like a lozenge as the walls close in. Death, I said, any death but that of the pit. Fool, might I have not known that into the pit it was the object of the burning iron to urge me? Could I resist its glow? Or if even that, could I withstand its pressure? And now, flatter and flatter grew the lozenge. With a rapidity that left me no time for contemplation, its center and of course its greatest width came just over the yawning gulf. I shrank back, but the closing walls pressed me resistlessly onward. At length, for my seared and writhing body, there was no longer an inch of foothold on the firm floor of the prison. I struggled no more, but the agony of my soul found vent in one loud, long, and final scream of despair. 
I felt that I tottered upon the brink. I averted my eyes. There was a discordant hum of human voices. There was a loud blast as of many trumpets. There was a harsh grating as of a thousand thunders. The fiery walls rushed back. An outstretched arm caught my own as I fell, fainting, into the abyss. It was that of General LaSalle. The French army had entered Toledo. The Inquisition was in the hands of its enemies. Boom, that's the end of the story. Yay! Saved at the last minute by the general himself. Aww. So a true action set piece, a true action scenario. I was glad it had a happy ending, because a lot of times these post stories, they don't. Yeah, most of the time they do not. And this one was like, kind of like, yeah, all right. I thought this guy was going to suffer a bunch and then die. But no, he got rescued, and then it kind of made me feel good. Yeah, it's good, although in the end there, when he says my seared body, I think that he tried to push up against those walls and wound up getting burned. So I think he's got a long period of recovery ahead of him that might not be so pleasant. Nevertheless, he did escape. So what did you what did you think of the story? Well, like I said, I didn't really connect with it. Yeah. It was just kind of a series of tortures uh, perpetrated upon a man. Mm. And it just was kind of eh, gross stuff. You know, the rats in the mouth and all that stuff. And it's uh, it's effective yeah. in a way, but I didn't enjoy it very much. <laughs> I'm sorry that. That's sorry right. about that. I like it. I enjoyed it. I mean, yeah, I, it's definitely not much of a story in terms of a character arc or anything like that. Or The discoveries are all just new ways to be tortured. Yeah. It's a little bit of masochism on Poe's part. I think he sat around just thinking about awful things happening to him all the time. And this is where he finds voice for those thoughts. Yeah. But I yeah. think that it's a common thing for folks to worry about these sorts of things or really go down into a dark place in their imagination. And in that respect, I think it's relatable. I don't know. I, I, I like it quite a bit. I, it's, it's obviously one that's been adapted a million times. I think it lends itself to being adapted in comic book format because you can mm. just do the story. But yeah. there's also that Corman, uh, Vincent Price movie, The Pit and the Pendulum. I think there was one that was in the 80s or 90s that they made. When you've got, oh, yeah, there's one with Lance Hendrickson, I think. Yes, yeah. And I, I think I actually haven't seen any of those movies because no. it's one of those things where you go, this is just one little episode. So if you're going to make the movie, you have to create all this other story around it and uh, – are those stories really interesting? Some, please yeah. tell us if you've seen those movies, because I actually don't know. I know that the, the Corman Poe movies are very, really popular. Yes. I haven't uh, seen any of them. But either, I haven't so. seen any of these adaptations, no. It's believed that Poe got some inspiration for the story uh, from a book called History of the Spanish Inquisition by Juan Antonio Lorente. Lorente got a lot of it wrong, though. And again, I'm doing some Wikipedia here. One theory is that Lorente misunderstood the account he heard. The prisoner was actually referring to another common Inquisition torture, the strapado, Mm. uh, in which the prisoner has his hands tied behind his back and is hoisted off the floor by a rope tied to his hands. The method was also known as the pendulum. It's horrible. God, yeah. People are terrible to each other. I think that a lot of the medieval, because when we did that show with Patton and we were talking about Iron Maidens and how that was a fictional creation later, read more about medieval tortures. And, you know, that's one of those things you you go through all the different ways that people were tortured in the Middle Ages. I think most of it's fake. They had very pedestrian ways of torturing people. And this wasn't one of them that was used over and over and over. It was just simply hanging people up by their arms, whether it was Uh against the way their joints were supposed to go or just leaving them there to slowly die oh, of pain it was just very God. simple what they were doing to folks but definitely it's unbelievable how incredibly cruel people can be to other people 
But also strangely, the story was somehow inspired by a translation of the Quran that Poe had had, because in there, people were thrown into burning pits of fire. It says, uh, cursed were the contrivers of the pit of fire supplied with the fuel, and they afflicted them for no other reason but because they believed in the mighty, the glorious God. Oh, so the idea being that somebody who doesn't agree with the religion is going to be punished by getting thrown into a into a pit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. the, the I could see that. The religious persecution. Right. There is also a story called The Iron Shroud by William Mudford uh, that has someone trapped in a shrinking room and then he dies at the end. Poe supposedly read that story. I think it came out maybe a year before that. So that might have also been some inspiration for this. I mean, I think that these are pretty common torture ideas. The walls closing in and a pit. Sure. The pendulum is the more unique one. Yeah. The slowly lowering pendulum. Well, that's the story. The pit and the pendulum. It's a good way to kick off Povember. Povember. It's very spooky. Uh, I want to thank Eric Curtis Johnson for being our reader today. He's been fantastic. Seriously, Eric. Thank you. You are awesome. And don't forget, folks, how to make a video game with Auric Digital. It's a great podcast. And their recent episode, A Potted History of Cthulhu Games, is one that we really want you to tune into I think it's very relevant to your interests. We will link out to it in our show notes. And those aren't the only folks we want to talk about. Of course, we want to thank some of our patrons. You bet we do. And first of all, I'd like to thank Joseph Argo. I'd like to thank David Milano. I'd like to thank K.S. Larson. I want to thank Maria Erickson. Bob Kelly of Heresy Research Labs. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, man. Heresy Research Labs, those are the exact people that are going to get captured by the Inquisition. You better be careful about that. Oh, no. Yeah. I want to thank Stefan Anundi. I'd like to thank Andrew Blank. Michael Bogan, thank you so much. I'd also like to thank David Prosper. Thank you. And last but not least, I want to thank Perv Longlegs, <laughs> our patron for supporting us. Perv Longlegs. That's a great hand. Perv Longlegs. Perv wow. Longlegs. You all are wonderful, beautiful people. And of course, we couldn't make this show without your help. Glad to have you as part of the team. Next week, we're going to continue November with Metzengerstein. This is Poe's first story to see print. It's a favorite of H.P. Lovecraft, and I have never read it before. No idea what it's about. I don't have any idea what it's about. It's going to be a total fresh die for me. That's right. Tune in next week for that. I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. hppodcraft.com